Well, it's good to be here this morning. I am actually substituting for my son. He scheduled his vacation when Pastor Rick had scheduled him to preach, so I guess Pastor Rick told me he had to get his daddy to take his place, and so here I am. I invite you this morning to turn in God's Word to Psalm 143, and I want to look at the whole psalm. I'm going to read just seven verses, but and focus on verse 7. I don't have PowerPoint uh, for you, but if you are taking notes, you should have no problem because I try to uh, keep it simple, and I really usually don't have to try too hard. I feel like Dr. Irvin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, he said, I prayed for God to keep me simple, and he says, sometimes I think that God may have overdone it a bit. <laughs> and so, I'm simple. Psalm 143, verse 1, O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and righteousness. Come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Especially verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Shall we pause in prayer? Father... The service to this point has been all about you, and we want to continue that. We pray the focus will not be on the speaker, but on your word. And we pray that as this psalm, like every psalm, has a message from you, we ask that we might hear your message for us today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to do something I ordinarily don't do, and that is I'd like to begin my message with three stories. First story is 1974. I was pastor at Hillside Baptist Church in Moncton, New Brunswick. We had just moved on to a new church campus, and on the second Sunday night, As the service was coming to a close, I noticed one of the younger deacons was called out, and when I finished my message and pronounced the benediction, went back to shake hands with people, he came in and he said, I just heard that my sister, her two children, and other sister's little boy were just killed in a car accident out on the Trans-Canada. 
People are still there, so I urged them to pray, and I went with the family to the hospital emergency room as the family gathered. Did my best to comfort them. There was a 12-year-old boy that had survived. We went to see him. What makes it especially tragic is just two years before, the father and husband had been killed at a railroad crossing. And the <clears throat> funeral is forever etched on my mind, those four caskets across the front. Three of us pastors conducted the funeral, and for the first time, I, I, I wept my way through the funeral. And two days later, I went with the family doctor to visit that 12-year-old boy to tell him that his <clears throat> mother and two sisters were gone, and he would be paralyzed for life. And I said, God, I, I don't understand. I just don't understand. Second story is six years later, 1980. I was pastor now in Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chatham here in Ontario. There was a family in the church that had three girls, and they so wanted a boy. And after several years, a beautiful baby boy was born into their family. They named him Cameron, and they all almost worshipped him. About six or eight months after I was there, one afternoon the phone rang and I was told that Cameron had been taken to the children's hospital in London. The family was there, so I immediately headed to London. Children's hospital found the family, went with uh, the doctors, a team of physicians, and they showed the family us the x-rays of this aneurysm and they they said, there's nothing we can do about it now. We'll just have to watch it, and as he gets a little older, we'll see what might be done. One of the doctors pulled me aside, and he says, you're the family clergyman, aren't you? And I says, yes. He said, this family's going to need you. That thing is a time bomb. A few days later, they took Cameron home, and he seemed to be doing well. A month or two later, we were called to celebrate his first birthday that had taken place while he was in the hospital. And over the next several months, he seemed to thrive, and everything seemed to be going well. And then one evening, I was at a deacon's meeting in the boardroom of one of the deacons who was president of a company in the church, and his wife came to the door and says, Pastor, you're needed at the hospital. Cameron just died. I quickly made my way to the hospital and found the family, and, and I, have, I have never witnessed such grief. And I hope I never do again. And again, I, I said, God, I don't understand. I just don't understand. The third story is more recent. In 2003 and 2004, I, I served as interim pastor over in Pickering at Bayfair Baptist Church. One of the families in that church was Brian and Edna Parker, and they started telling me about their son who was with his wife and another girl formed the Parker Tree Owner in full-time ministry. They were very proud of him. They gave me cassettes and CDs and, and wanted me to meet them. And it so happened that a short while later I did. I had been scheduled to speak at an anniversary service in a church where they were giving the special music, and so we met. And I, I was so impressed with their talent, especially the way that Warren could play the piano. And I followed them, and I would be sent tickets. My wife and I would get tickets every time there was a concert in the area. And after I had finished my work at uh, Pickering, was now 
internment in Woodstock. I uh, went to the gospel uh, quartet convention in Louisville, Kentucky on a pass with the, the Parker Trio and heard them again and, and talked to them and heard their vision for what they were doing. They were so committed, so dedicated, so excited. And, and it seemed every time I heard them, they were improving. In January of 2006, my wife and I were spending the winter in Florida, and Sunday morning, just before we got ready for church, I checked the email, and there was an email from a man in the church in Pickering, and he said, I thought you want, would want to know. Last night, Warren Parker was killed as he was, by hit-and-run drivers, he was directing the, the bus into the parking lot where they were going to give a concert today. I called my wife and showed it to her, and immediately we were down on our knees. We prayed for Brian and Edna and prayed for Shannon and his wife. Again, I said, God, I don't understand. I, I just don't understand. Why have I told you these stories? For this reason. There are sometimes things that happen to us that make no sense. And it seems like God is absent, but he's hidden his face, as the psalmist says. Now, there, there are many times that tragedies come into our lives, and, and, and after we see what good comes out of them. Like Joseph, when he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into Egypt in slavery, and then lied about and thrown in prison, but ended up as the prime minister of Egypt and saved that nation and eventually his own family. And he could say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's wonderful when that happens. I remember 1956, five young men missionaries in Ecuador were martyred by the very Arawaka Indians that they were trying to reach. At the time, we thought, what a tragedy. But out of that and out of books the family wrote, there were literally thousands of young people in the next few years that dedicated themselves to, to the Lord's service at home or abroad. And I know, because I was one of them, and after reading The Shadow of the Almighty, I said, God, I want to just give my life for you. And I quit my job at the bank and went away to Christian University to train. And, and when we see the good that comes out of it, it's, it's wonderful. But, but what about those times when we don't see the good? The good is there. Romans 8.28 is right, is true. God does work in all things for the good of his people. But there are times when we cannot See his face. It's hidden. We, we, we can't understand. And it is at those times that we are driven to the Psalms. Because even though we may know, yes, God is, has a purpose. But he seems absent. And six times, at least, in the Psalms, you read this expression, don't hide your face from me, or why have you hidden your face from me? Well, we have a misconception of the Psalms. 
we, we tend to think of the Psalms as comfort. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or praise, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. But many of the Psalms are expressing fear and frustration and, and questioning and desperation. They, they can't understand what's going on in their world. They're crying out to God. We identify with that. Lots of times they're angry. Psalm 58, 6, the psalmist says, Lord, break the teeth of my enemies. Now, that guy was angry. And, and we go to the psalms... We're attracted to it in those times when, when it seems God's face is hidden. He seems to be missing. We can't see his purposes. We go to the Psalms because the Psalms deal with the realities of life. Those, those difficult things, that trouble that tragedy, that confusion, that fear. Because you see, that's real life. All of us, at some time or another, question God. Mother Teresa was asked what was the first word she was going to say to Jesus when she met him, and she said, it will probably be, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Now, she's not really, or she didn't really say that, and that wasn't her true feelings, but you can understand it. She lived among the dying homeless in Calcutta and went there just so some of them at least wouldn't have to die alone. I remember going in from the airport in Calcutta late one night, a month, I think just a month after she she passed away, and, and we drove through that same area and saw the homeless still there and saw signs that said, we miss you, Mother Teresa. We, we love you, Mother Teresa. But you can understand her living with that misery for so many years that she would have those questions in her mind. We all have them. And the psalmist deal with those questionings. Because the psalm deals with real life. We live in a world that that tries to avoid any pain, any hardship, any difficulty. Read the commercials. They're all about avoiding either aging or pain or whatever. It's the way it works. I remember hearing an old preacher years and years ago say something that stuck with me. He said, we're not living in the sweet by and by, we're living in the nasty now and now. (laughs) True. Some people question my taste in music, and when I tell you what my favorite music is, you're going to start groaning. But I feel there's only two real kinds of music, country and western. I got a few claps. Didn't get any much from over here. But do, do, do not write me off totally. Uh, this past winter, my wife and I 
instead of putting our money out on a Gaither homecoming, we went to a, a Chris Tomlin concert, heard him sing, we fall down, how great is our God, and so on. And, and our hearts were blessed. Our heads were splitting, but our hearts were blessed. <laughs> and, but the, pe- people will say, how can you like country music? It's so sad. That's true. A lot of it is. The guy sings about the fact that his girl left him and his dog died and someone stole his pickup truck. But you know why country music is so popular? Is because that's real life. We can't live very long without being disappointed in love. It's hard to reach the age of 10. In fact, I only reached the age of 9 and was jilted by a little redhead. <laughs> Don't laugh, it was a bad year. Same year I learned about Santa Claus. <laughs> Still in therapy over it. And... Uh, Dogs, we we love our dogs. There are people here, if you were honest, you would admit that you cried more when your dog died than you did at your Uncle Charlie's funeral. (laughs) I had three dogs, one very special. We named him Trix. He was a great dog. Just a mutt, people would ask me his pedigree, and I'd say, well, his mother was about half Spaniel, and his father came from a good neighborhood. (laughs) And uh, we loved him. When he was 11 years old, I got married. First night home from the honeymoon, I went in the bedroom, went to bed, and old Trix followed me in. He jumped up on the bed beside me. He used to turn around about three times, and he'd plop down with a sigh, and he did that. And my new bride came in the bedroom and saw him there and said, what's he doing there? And I said, well, that's where he sleeps. And you know the old saying, first come, first serve. <laughs> she didn't see it that way. And she drove him off the bed, and I can still see him as he headed out the doorway to find somewhere else to sleep. And he turned, stopped, and looked at me as if to say, are you going to let her get away with that? <laughs> well, he would, he would try to reclaim his spot a few times, but he discovered there was a new sheriff in town. <laughs> but uh, I loved him and felt so badly when he died a few years later. I loved him just slightly less than the new sheriff. <laughs> And I'll spare any stories about my 1949 Ford pickup truck. But the reason we're attracted to country music is it deals with the heartaches of life that all of us face. The problem is no solutions. The best they can do is leave you crying in your beer. And that's why we need the song. Because the psalmist always has a message from God for us. And I want us to very quickly look this morning at the message from this psalm and what he is saying, how he dealt with these perplexities. I I want you to notice three responses that that the psalmist had three attitudes that are essential if we are going to face the difficult times in life and not lose our grip. I want you to notice, first of all, and this is so important, the psalmist did not give up on God. When people face these 
times when they can't understand where a good God is, if God is loving and God is good, where is he? They have a tendency to give up on God. And it'll manifest itself when they leave the church. Right when they need the church the most. And the support of family. They give up on the church because they give up on God because they cannot understand what God is doing. It seems he's missing. The late Charles Templeton, who who was an evangelist and toured Europe in the 40s with Billy Graham for Youth for Christ and founded the church in Toronto that's now uh, Bayview Glen Church. And, and, and he was a mighty preacher, but along the way he lost his faith and left the ministry. And then his final step was he became an atheist and he gave the reason in an interview. He said, he said I, I, I saw, and I think it was Look Magazine or Life Magazine, he said, I, I saw a, a, a mother in Africa holding her dead baby that had died of starvation from a famine. And I said, I, I had the choice. Either I would believe in a God who could have sent rain and saved the life of that child or believe in no God. And I chose to believe in no God. Well, there's a lot of problems with what he did. Because, you see, he was ignoring some things. He was ignoring the fact that there are literally billions of mothers that hold a child in their hands that's alive. Because rain did come. He was also ignoring the fact, in blaming God, that there are things that God expects us to do. Man's responsibility. See, there should be no starvation in the world. In North America, literally each day, we throw enough good food in our garbage cans to wipe out starvation in this world. He should have been angry at either the relief agencies that didn't go there or the political leaders that wouldn't allow them. Instead, he blamed God. But there was another problem. When Charles Templeton gave up on God, he had nothing left. That's why it's so important. We do not give up on God. There is no other option. There's no plan B. God is the only game in town. You can't say, okay, God, I'm giving up on you. Is there anyone else up there? He's it. And the psalmist did not Give up on God. You notice he says in verse 1, O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. He did not give up on God. That's the first step. Never give up on God. Even if he seems to be missing. Secondly, the psalmist focused on the character of God, who God really was, rather than what, on what God was doing at any particular moment. He, he, he immediately reminds himself of God's faithfulness and righteousness in verse 1. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. He says, you're faithful. 
You're righteous. And and then in verse 8, he he says, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. And in verse 12, he again repeats your unfailing love. You see what he's saying? He's focusing on the God he knows. He knows God is righteous. He knows God is faithful. And he knows God's love does not fail. That word unfailing love, it's translated unfailing love, is an interesting word in the original. It's what the Hebrews call chesed, but it's a word that combines loyalty and love. I like the translation unfailing love. And the psalmist focuses on who God is, not on what he is doing at any particular moment. And we must keep our focus on who God is, that God is faithful and God is righteous and his love does not fail. And he gets things in perspective in verse 2 where he says, Do not bring your serving into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. See what he's saying? He's saying, God, you're righteous and none of the rest of us are. And that's important. Because if there is wrongdoing, it's not God. He's never wrong. He's always righteous. He's always right. If there's wrong, it's either the devil or us. It's not God. And that's why he says that that I remember, verse 5, the days of long ago, I meditate on all your works, I consider what your hands have done. He says, I'm now looking at the whole picture, not at this moment. I remember your righteousness, your faithfulness, your unfailing love. And you and I will have to admit if we have served God for very long, even though there are times in our life when we can't understand what God's doing, when we look at the whole picture, we have to say, yes, he was right. Yes, his love was there. Yes, he was faithful. And so the psalmist didn't give up on God and secondly focused on God's character, not on what was happening at any particular moment. And then the third and final thing I want to leave with you is he prayed. This psalm is almost a whole ball of its prayer, but, but there are five prayers I'm going to quickly leave with you because they're all me prayers. He says, me, 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 me. And we, we question that because, you know, I mean, we're not supposed to be selfish and, uh, you know, we shouldn't be focused on ourselves at all. We're just on others and on God. There is a place for prayer that is focused on us. And particularly when we're in that moment of our life where we're completely confused and perplexed. And I want you to notice these five me prayers. First one, verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. See what he's saying? Answer me. 
He's not asking for answers, but what he is saying is, God, I need to know you're there. That, that's a proper prayer. God, I, I, I just need to be able to cry on your shoulder and, and, and I need to feel your arms around me. I need to know you're there. Because there are times in our life that we feel he's not there. His face is hidden. Pray, answer me. We have six grandchildren, four of them you know, of course, of John and Lori's. We have two others in Pembroke, and we're on our way there to see them now. And uh, they have a little boy, Brody. He's five now, and for the first four years, he lived in London. His father was youth pastor in London, and now he's taken a position in church in his past year in Pembroke. Well, little Brody was with us a lot, and uh, he would have his nap sometimes in the afternoon with us, and when he'd wake up from his nap, he would come out the door, start down the hallway, and you would hear him, hello, 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 and he'd keep that up until either someone responded or he found us. He wanted to know we were there. Remember one night we had him, I think Steph and Tim had a, yes, they had an overnight youth event. He was with us all night about 1.30. He woke up in the morning, started crying, and so I went in and sat on his bed and, and uh, said, Papa's here, bro, you just go back to sleep now. And, and he settled down, and the room was dark. He couldn't see me, but every so often he'd reach out and just touch me to make sure I was still there. And finally he went to sleep, and I was able to, Go back to our bedroom. You see, sometimes there are days that are dark. You can't see God. It's okay to say, God, I just need to reach out and touch you. I just need to know you're there. Answer me. And what you'll discover, that sooner or later, something happens, and you know he's there. Second prayer is in verse 8. Show me the way, show me the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Notice very carefully he doesn't say, show me the way I want to go. Or the way I'd like to go. Show me your way. There are times when our plans are shattered. There are times when we come to the end of our own way. That is when we pray, show me your way. What we are doing is we are acknowledging to God, all this is happening and I can't see any reason for it. It's not making sense. But I do believe that, that, that I'm your child and, and you do have some purposes. There is something you're doing in my life. I can't see it. I don't understand it. God, show me your way. See, the basic problem of man is Recorded in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's our problem. We have our own way. We are born like 
children wanting our own way. And when God messes up our plans, we get very upset. And sometimes he allows us to bang our head until finally we say, okay, Lord, I give up. Show me your way. I'm seeking you. Third prayer, verse 9. Rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Rescue me. He says, for I hide myself in you. And that word hide, it's a different word than the word that's translated hide in verse 7. It's a word that means to cover. He is saying, I am covering myself with you. In other words, I am putting you between me and my enemies. Rescue me. Because if you don't, there's going to be no rescue. It's between you, uh, you're between me and my enemies, and they have to get through you to get to me. It's like a child that is with a parent, and maybe a big dog comes, and they're scared, so they get behind their, their, their parent, and they're just looking out at the dog, but they know as long as their parent is between them and that dog, they're okay. A very important truth there. We always need to keep God between us and our enemies or us and our problems. Because if God is between us and that problem or us and that enemy, that problem, that enemy cannot touch us unless God allows it for his purposes. It's when we take things into our own hands we get into trouble. There are lots of times we think we know exactly what needs to be done. You know. Okay, Lord, this, there's an enemy. Okay, Lord, let's see. They need their teeth broken. Now, Lord, I can handle that. You don't have to. And we head off to break their teeth, and it's a disaster. You see, we always have to keep God between us and our problem between God, uh, us and our enemies. And we have to say, rescue us, Lord, because if you don't rescue us, I can't. In fact, this whole psalm, if you will notice, starting with the first, hear my cry for mercy, he is casting himself on God's grace and God's mercy. It's so important before we run out and take action ourselves like Moses did in slaying the Egyptian to save two of his countrymen and got himself into all kinds of trouble taking things into his own hands and and, and getting ahead of God. I always have to say, Lord, I don't understand, but it's you first. I'm, I'm covering myself with you. Fourth prayer, verse 10, teach me. Again, I want you to notice the wording. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Notice he says, teach me to do your will. He doesn't say, teach me to know your will. It's a lot easier to know God's will than it is to do it. It's a lot easier to understand his will in this word than to do it. 
late Peter Marshall said, it's not the scriptures that I don't understand that bother me. He said, it's the ones that I understand all too well. Commands that I ought to do that I don't want to. Things that I ought to avoid that I don't. A trust that I ought to have that's not there. See, you know, I understand a lot of the scriptures, love your enemies. I understand that, what it means, but to do it. Let each esteem the other better than themselves. I understand that. Problem's doing it. As, as much as it lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Oh, you know, I understand that. The problem's doing it. And when we are in a place where God's face seems to be hidden and life is crashing around us, so important at that point because we have a tendency to rebel we have a tendency to do the wrong thing this prayer is important teach me to do your will and then the final prayer in verse 11 he says bring me bring me out of trouble Uh, it's a very Simple prayer, bring me out of trouble, but it is so important because now he's actually asking for deliverance. He he is saying, preserve my life. But there is an important condition. Notice in verse 11, for your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life and in your righteousness bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. You see what he's saying? Lord, don't do it for me, do it for you. It's not my reputation, Lord, I'm concerned about. It is your reputation. For your name's sake, I'm your servant. People are criticizing you because they're looking at your servant and seeing what's happening in the life of your servant. And, And I'm being beaten up by my enemies. And Lord... Lord, they're making fun of you. For your name's sake, deliver me. When we can reach the place where we say, Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. Lord, I I want deliverance, but the reason I want it is for your name's sake. As Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, I'm in a straight between two. I don't know what to do whether to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and, and, and living will help you, and dying I'll see Christ. and That would be my preference, but for your sake, I'm, I'm, I'm confident I'll remain. But he said, whether in life or by death, is all I want is that Christ might be magnified in my body, in my life. When we can come to the place where we are honestly not looking for vindication for ourselves, but looking for vindication for our God, then we can pray that prayer. You see, what the psalmist is telling us is that when we find ourselves in those times that to things have happened and there's no answers and years pass. 
and many years can pass and we still seem to have no answers. I was back in Moncton 25 years later, invited there for anniversary services. I asked about that 12-year-old boy. This has been a struggle. It's been a struggle all his life. I saw Cameron's mother a while back. She and her daughter were in London looking or shopping and running in the mall. More than 20 years had passed. And I remember after Cameron's death, every time she'd smile, there was pain in her eyes, and I saw her, and there was still pain in her eyes, revealing that her heart has not been healed. I wish I could say that someone picked up the Parker Trio, and it's going on stronger than ever, but that hasn't happened. I heard from Buffalo Station a while back them singing, and I still wonder why, but you see, it's at those times, it's at those times we have to pray the prayers of the psalmist. My wife and I were traveling on the interstate some time ago, and I can't remember if it was Dennis Rainey's family life or James Dobbs' focus on the family, but there was a lady giving a testimony, and she told about how wonderful her life had been. She and her husband were childhood sweethearts married, and they had three or four wonderful children, and life was so good, and she had just been thinking, I couldn't ask for anything better. And she said, we were in a car accident, and it left my husband with brain damage, and so that his mental capacity is never, never will be beyond a six-year-old. Physically, he's fine, but can't function. She said, I had to go back to school teaching to provide for the family, and my husband will come, so he's sitting in the class or in the teacher's room. And she said, it's been difficult, and a while back, she said, I said, God, I need my husband the way he used to be. And then she said, I thought about it, and I thought that everything I was wanting was not something I couldn't live without. And then she made a statement that was so simple and yet so profound. She said, I discovered I don't need answers. I just need God. You see, you and I can live without answers. We can't live without Jesus. And the good news is we do not have to live without him because if we are his child, he's promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. And if you're here this morning and you don't have him because you've never received him, the message in the Gospels was coming to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The final message in Revelation is whosoever will come and drink of the water of life freely, you can come to Jesus today and you'll have him forever. You don't have to live without Jesus. But during those times, as Babby Mason sang, when we can't see his plan, when we can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Let's pray. Father, as the psalmist said, who have I in heaven but thee, and there is none on earth I desire besides thee. And, oh God, maybe there's some here today that it seems like they're going through a time when you seem to be missing. Lord, help them to know you're there. You're always there. You're righteous. You're faithful. 
and your love never fails. Help us always to lean on Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.